Loving Lord, we thank you for your blessings and even for this technology that makes it possible for us to network and study with others and ask that uh, you just take charge of this time with your spirit. May we be drawn closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, everyone in the, watching what's going on in the world today with this pandemic and, and uh, regardless of what a person's views might be, I don't think anyone can deny it is, it's kind of turned the world into a yard sale as far as what we normally expect. And, uh, you know, a lot of people believe, well, this is a sign that uh, Jesus is coming soon. And I believe that this is one of the signs that Jesus is coming soon, that uh, we're kind of entering a new chapter. We've seen how quickly the world can change. The economy almost overnight can go from boom to bust. And, uh, you know, people's lives be turned upside down and uh, leaders of the world all of a sudden just come together. Uh, what I'm a little more concerned about is, uh, and I've seen, you know, a great interest in spiritual things. We've just noticed that our Bible school and Amazing Facts has quite literally doubled the interest, people signing up for Bible lessons or for, um, uh, you know, online Bible studies and uh, the viewers at our different websites. We've just seen a real surge of spiritual interest that is wonderful. My concern is I do think eventually they're going to, you know, loosen the restrictions. People are going to start coming back out. Life will return to some, never be exactly the same, I don't think, but I think that uh, it'll start resuming uh, some normalcy. But um, then if God's servants say, oh, I guess, wow, we made it through that one. I guess we're okay. And uh, my fear is that if people have had a renewed interest in spiritual things, if restrictions start lifting and we get back to work as normal, are we going to lose our spiritual interest? And, uh, you know, I think Jesus warns us in his word that we need to be careful um, not to put off the coming of the Lord. Of course, Christ said this 2000 years ago because our lives are short. And I think one of the devil's most successful plans is uh, procrastination. We think, well, when I see the end coming, then I'm going to start getting ready. And the Lord wants us to live in a state of full surrender and preparation and so that we can be reaching others. You know, and the reason I, I see this, I'll just share what Jesus said, is uh, at the end of Matthew 24, where he talks about signs of his return, he says, if that servant, that evil servant, says in his heart, my master delays his coming. Notice the word delay. And that almost sounds like when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the people were being tested by the delay. They didn't know how long he was going to be gone. They thought he's just going to go up there and get the Ten Commandments and come back in a day or two. And 40 days went by. And basically, they were being tested. And during that test, they made a golden calf and they got discouraged and everything changed. So it's like Jesus is warning us there may be a delay. And then right after he says this in Matthew 24, you go to Matthew 25, and he tells the parable of the ten virgins, and it says, while the bridegroom tarried, uses the same word. It's like the Lord is trying to say, you know, there could be a time of testing, an apparent delay before the second coming. And um, over and over, speaking of his coming, he says, he that endures to the end uh, 
keep watching. Don't get discouraged. And when he went to resurrect Lazarus, the sisters, Mary and Martha, said, why are you so late? Um, and he said, well, for the glory of God. It may look like I'm late, but I'm actually right on time. Um, when Saul was told by Samuel the prophet, he says, you're going to fight against the Philistines. I want you to wait for me. He said, I will surely come. I like the wording of Samuel. I will surely come. It's like Jesus said, I will come again. He said, wait. But then it says, Samuel was delayed. And during that delay, Saul was being tested. Now, he did come the seventh day. It was just later in the seventh day than he thought. But Saul, uh, he lost his patience. And in, in turn, he lost the kingdom because he didn't hold on. That's why Jesus tells us we need to endure to the end. We need a faith that's going to hold on. I think there's a Russian proverb that says, God is never late, but he seldom seems to be on time. And then you have um, the uh, promise in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3. It says, the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And then Paul quotes that. He says, uh, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. That's in Hebrews chapter 10. So just all through the Bible, I see a number of stories. Matter of fact, even in Revelation 10, the angel lifts up his hand to heaven and earth and says that there should be delay no longer. Why would the angel say there's going to be delay no longer unless there was at least the appearance of delay? And so I think there's going to be a time of testing for God's people at the end. I don't think that Jesus' return is going to come at a time when everybody's expecting it. I think Jesus said, in an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. That before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were buying, they were selling, they were building. It looked like life is normal. And that's why I think we need to be careful about waiting until there's a crisis and say, maybe I need to get ready now. Because in reality, none of us knows how long our lives are. So we, we need to, if we love the Lord, then love him and be ready and serve him. And don't be mobilized by uh, a pandemic. To, now, if, if that's a starting point, great. And the Lord will take any time you decide to get serious. But I think when this lifts or if it evaporates, are we going to still be as committed to the Lord? And, um, you know, that would just be my appeal, Ryan, is that um, we've got to make our decision and live by it in the good times and the bad. Because, you know, sunshine and rain come for everybody in history. And Christians need to be mobilized by love, not by current events. Amen. That is, that is something so powerful um, to remember. And actually, I think I remember, I, I think it was you who said this. Um, we need to live every day like it's our last, but live in preparation like we're going to be here for a while. I can't remember if you said that or something like that, but basically I've, every day. I've said it, but it's not original with me. Okay. All right. I, I think you were the first one I heard say it. So I said, oh, that's, a good, that's a good way to look at this. We need to live every single Plan day. Plan for a thousand we're... years and live like every day could be your last. That's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a very good reminder. Thank you, Pastor Duck, for sharing that. Um, we need to live every day, no matter good or bad, um, in preparation for Christ's coming. So thank you for that reminder. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, I know a lot of you who are watching um, are anxiously awaiting to see um, if your question gets answered. We will try and get through as many questions as we can. I know that there's quite a few here. So 
forgive us if we didn't get to your question, but um, we will we will do our best. So we have quite a few of the questions. By the way, if you guys still want to submit questions, the polling is open. Uh, you're also welcome to vote questions up and vote questions down. So if you do want to see a particular question get answered, um, if we get to it, please vote it up. So we just want to remind you um, that that is still there. And we should have the link there on Facebook. So at this time, um, Carissa, I'm going to um, have you start. Carissa is going to be our moderator this Sabbath for our questions. So Carissa, you have some questions already in queue, ready to um, ask. And so we will go ahead and get started. All right, we do. We've had a lot of really good questions come in. So I'm excited to to hear uh, on these questions. So the first one we're looking at is, what do you do if you think that God has spoken to you through an audible voice? How do you know if it's real? Um, well, first of all, if the voice says anything that conflicts with the word of God, it's suspect. Um, God very rarely speaks to people audibly. I think many of us believe, you know, myself included, I felt like I've had the Lord speak to me, but it was probably just a very powerful impression on my conscience. And I felt like the voice of the Lord was speaking inside of my head. But to audibly outside, like other sounds, hear the little voice of the Lord, uh, it does happen. It's pretty rare. If it's telling you to do something that is safe to do biblically, um, it might be a good idea to listen. Um, I think that the, the way you know that it's the voice of God, it's like, how did Abraham know that it was God that was telling him to take and to offer his son? Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't want to get mixed up on that question. But he was so used to the voice of the Lord that when God did speak to him, he recognized the voice. Whenever uh, Karen calls me and I pick up the cell phone, I don't have to hear her say a whole sentence to know it's her. I know her voice so well. All she's got to do is say hi. And just right away, I know it's her. So I think that if God's going to speak to you audibly, you're going to know it's the voice of the Lord. Mm. I love that. The importance of the relationship connection to know, to know Mm -hmm. that it's him. Excellent. Okay. The next question, how do we truly keep the 10th commandment? You can choose not to act on it or even to think about it, but how do you choose what you want? And where is the line between temptation and sin in the 10th commandment? Okay. Of course, the 10th commandment is talking about do not covet. It's talking about not coveting your neighbor's house, his wife, or anything that's your neighbor's. Uh, and then the Bible tells us, I think it's 1 Corinthians 14, covet earnestly the best gifts. So coveting in itself is not wrong. Uh, just like some people say um, it's a sin to paint a picture because it's an image. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to make an image. God commanded the children of Israel to make images of angels in the, in the sanctuary. He said, do not make an image and bow down to it. And it's not a sin to covet, to desire something. Um, you read in Psalm 37, God says he'll give you the desires of your heart when your way is committed to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would just say, you know, if you're now, if my neighbor's got a, his car and it's a nice car parked in the front yard and it's got a for sale sign on it. I think, well, it's a really nice car. I'd like that car. There is no sin in wanting your neighbor's car if your na- neighbor is selling this car. But if you're jealous and you're discontent with what you have, so the 10th commandment is really talking about being discontent. 
And it's also unique from the other commandments in so many of the other commandments or actions. The 10th commandment is really talking about something on the inside. It's an attitude. And disobeying the 10th commandment can lead to, well, you want your neighbor's wife, that leads to breaking the 7th commandment. Uh, If you want your neighbor's goods, that leads to breaking the commandment about stealing uh, and so forth. So um, uh, I say the way to draw the line is it's not to have, first of all, being satisfied as a Christian, he that would strive to be rich falls into many foolish temptations uh, or making haste to get rich, wanting things out of their right time and not being satisfied with what you have. Paul said, I've li- whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. So uh, wanting to buy something that's for sale, it's, it's not a sin for a Christian to want something. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, and also kind of picking back in on their question a bit, the, it was posed, what is the line between temptation and sin? So just as a, as a general question, what's the line? When does it move from being a temptation? Uh, that's, yes, yes. Uh, well, I heard it put this way. You cannot prevent the birds from flying over your hair head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. Uh, let's suppose that I'm hurt by something that uh, somebody did to me. And I think about it and it bothers me. You need to put it out of your mind. Don't dwell on it and be bitter because then it, you know, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you can be guilty of murder. So if you start thinking, well, that person's really not nice and you start gossiping about them or you start wishing bad things would happen to them, then it becomes sin. It's the same thing with lust. The Bible says if you you look, it may not be a sin. You know, if you're driving down the road and there's a billboard of a girl in a bikini uh, advertising suntan lotion, and you look up there and you go, yeah, that's not right. It's not a sin to notice that. Uh, if you start dwelling on it, and you're letting it make a nest in your hair is when it becomes sin. Mm. Jesus was tempted. Jesus never sinned. Hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for that clarity. A question that was submitted. And then a lot of people have liked it and appreciate this comment is how do you know who is the right person to marry? How do you know who's the right person to marry? You're asking a bachelor that question, huh? <laughs> Um, well, that, that really is a good question. First of all, you would want to know that, uh, you're going to be equally yoked spiritually. The Bible says that can two walk together if they're not agreed. So you want to make sure you're going in the same direction spiritually where your goal is to serve Christ and to be in his kingdom. Um, it it does, it does help if there's compatibility in other areas. Uh, I've seen sometimes that, um, you know, if people, um, I don't know if I'm answering the question exactly the way it's being asked, but it helps. I know C.D. Brooks used to say, when you're thinking about who you're going to marry, make sure it's somebody that's in the same educational ballpark as you are, um, because you want to be able to communicate on an intellectual level with them. Uh, you want to make sure they're in roughly the same age ballpark. Now, there can be some variation, but, uh, you know, if you marry somebody that, uh, you know, is 30 years different age, you're kind of at a different stage in your life. And I've seen that that can sometimes cause problems. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then you want to take time. You know, people shouldn't get married the day after they meet. You take enough time to get to know them. And uh, another thing I used to hear CD books say, people think before they get married, they need to share a bed together and to see if they're compatible. He said, if you want to find out if you're compatible, try and share a bank account. Because (laughs) most marriages do not fail because of sexual incompatibility, but because of financial problems. And so, you know, uh, if the person has is annoying you with some idiosyncrasy while you're dating, that annoyance is going to be unbearable in marriage. <laughs> so you, if a girl is dating a guy and he starts pushing and shoving when they're dating, it'll turn into slugging when they're married. Take enough time where you get to know the person and kind of, you know, make sure that you've got that compatibility and they've got the Christian spirit. I could t- I could spend the rest of the time answering that question. I better just stop right there. So well, I, I think that's really marriage counseling. Yeah, <laughs> that's really practical insight. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate the ministry that you and and Karen have together. Yeah. So this one has a lot of votes coming in. It references two Bible passages: Mark seven fifteen to nineteen and Romans fourteen appear to say we can eat whatever with a few conditions. Can you clarify this? All right. I'm going there now with my Bible. I'm pretty sure I know Mark 7 is talking about eating things with unwashed hands. And if they're reading it in the, um, uh, if they're reading it in the um, NIV uh, version, uh, there it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all things clean. That is not in the original Greek. The NIV uh, did not get that from the Textus Receptus. That's from another manuscript, and it was actually a parenthetical statement that somebody had put in there. Um, in um, and I'm I'm assuming I'm answering the question they're asking here because I still haven't looked it, uh, looked it up yet. You said Mark chapter seven. Correct, Mark seven fifteen to nineteen. Yeah, I tell you what's messing me up, friends. I got my laptop open. And I keep trying to fix my desktop with my laptop mouse and nothing's happening. I finally realized <laughs> I, had, I had the wrong mouse. Um, all right. Um, do you not know that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it doesn't enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? Here, and this is accurate actually in the New King James Version, it's saying that it goes through his digestive system. You know, if, if a kid is playing in the playground and they get some dirt in their mouth, that's not going to defile their hearts. Uh, it's going to go through the process and be eliminated. Uh, the NIV says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And it doesn't say that in the original. And then the other one was Romans 14, where he said, um, he that is weak eats herbs, as I'm guessing what they're talking about. Let me go there real quick. Um, yeah, Romans 14.1, he who is weak in the faith, but does not dispute over, do not dispute over doubtful things, for one believes that he might eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Oh, well, that would make it sound like only weaklings eat vegetables. In reality today, some of the, the world's greatest athletes for endurance are now vegetarians and vegan vegetarians for that matter. So Paul is not saying that vegetarians are anemic or weaklings. He's saying that they had a problem in Bible times the Orthodox Jews and Christians that were being influenced by them were afraid to eat any meat that had been sold in a Greco-Roman market because before they butchered that sheep or that goat or chicken, they offered it to a pagan god. 
And so the Christians were saying, we can't eat meat because it's been offered to gods and we'll be endorsing these pagan gods. And Paul said, look, if it's bothering you, then don't eat it, just eat vegetables. If your faith is so weak that you're afraid that if you go into a Chinese restaurant and there's a Buddha in the lobby, that if you eat in that Chinese restaurant, you are somehow honoring Buddha. Um, and, and I can't ask the people who are watching, but I bet anyone here who's eaten Thai or Chinese food at one point or another, there was some little Buddhist symbol or shrine in one of those restaurants. Did it bother your conscience? Well, if you're with a brother or sister and they say, I just can't eat this because I'm, I'm honoring Buddha, then don't eat it. That's what Paul's talking about. And don't judge those who say, I don't have a problem that they, they're burning incense to Buddha off in the corner somewhere in their restaurant. Uh, this is what they were dealing with in um, Paul's day. Okay, excellent. Very clear. Thank you. Why would God create us if he knew that doing so would bring so much pain to humanity? Well, yeah, of course, this is the big question. If God is good, if God is love, if God is powerful, he's all powerful. Why doesn't he destroy the devil? If he's good, then why is there so much bad in the world? And if he's powerful, why does he allow it? Um, I think people need to understand the, the devil factor that there was a very powerful, indeed the most powerful of God's creatures, Lucifer, that challenged the goodness of God and had a campaign in heaven saying that God is not fair, God is heavy-handed, God is not loving, his government is unjust, his laws aren't good. And if God had just destroyed Lucifer, uh, the other angels would think, and other creatures, maybe he was right. The Lord was in a position where he had to allow, because he makes his intelligent creatures free, we all have free will to love, he had to allow this terrible experiment with sin to play itself out. And um, that means that God would even make a creature that would choose not to love him, because he really does make his creatures free. The bottom line is, if God only made creatures that he knew would love him, it ceases to be love. Because then it's forced, it's pre-programmed. The highest proof that God makes his creatures free, C.S. Lewis used to say, is the lake of fire. Um, that he'd even make a creature that would say, I won't love you. And they really are free to choose. Because God knows what's going to happen does not mean he's making it happen. And why do parents decide to have a baby when they know there's a chance that baby may disobey? that baby might be brought into a world where there's pain and suffering because they want to love and they want the love. And so they take that risk. God uh, loves. And so he even makes creatures that uh, have that freedom. And we really do have the freedom because that's what's happened in the world. Mm. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, I think a very important one. That's an age old question that a lot of people have turned away from God because of just wrestling with those questions. That's yeah. a really important one. This one is now second place. A lot of people are uh, questioning this. In biblical and modern times, inspired writers have specifically stated that people alive at their time would see Christ's return. Since God knows the future, why would he allow these inspired writers to predict something that didn't come to pass? Yeah, the Bible ends by John saying, even so come Lord Jesus, behold, I come quickly. And, you know, there are several passages in the New Testament where it talks about the imminence of the Lord's coming. 
Uh, a couple of verses help us understand this. First of all, uh, Paul said, do not think that that day is coming uh, as soon as you think. He's in a paraphrasing. This is Second Thessalonians, I think. He said, that day will not come unless there come a falling away first. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the places where Paul said, it's not as soon as you think. Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. So if Jesus, if, <laughs> if the world's been around about 6,000 years, and 4,000 years into human's history is when Christ came, uh, here we are two days later. When you, if you have eternal life and you live for zillions of years, how long is 6,000 years? I mean, God told Adam, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, he lived 930 years. He died in that first millennium. So a day with the Lord's like a thousand years, and uh, our lives are like a vapor, David says. It's like grass that springs up green in the morning, and it's withered by the end of the day. Our lives are like a vapor. And so when you say tall or short, quick or slow, those are very relative terms, especially if you're talking about God and eternity. Absolutely. I think that's, that's important. That's valid. Um, okay. Another question that's just coming in, uh, you know, actually, I guess to touch on that question too, I can't imagine how incredibly discouraging that would be for John the Revelator if he knew that it'd be another 2000 years before Jesus comes. Yeah, and, you know, I think that um, we all want to know that Jesus is coming in our lifetime. I knew when I joined the church, there were saints that um, were so excited about the imminence of the coming of the Lord, and they all died of old age. Mm -hmm. And I was a teenager then, and, uh, you know, here I am, an old man. Um, But uh, it's like, and, you know, another way, Chris, I'd answer that is keep in mind, here's here's an example. God told Abraham, well, first of all, God told Adam and Eve, through your descendants, the Messiah is going to come. Your seed will crush the serpent's head. Eve hoped it was Cain. There's something in Cain's name where she thought, I've got the man from the Lord. Um, well, nothing happens until finally Abraham comes along and God says to Abraham, through your family, the Messiah is going to come. Great. Every Jewish mother wished she would have the Messiah. A thousand years go by, 1,500 years go by. Finally, 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus comes. Then Jesus says, I will come again. Well, here we are 2,000 years later. And so you get 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and 2,000 years for Abraham to Jesus' first coming. And here we are 2,000 years later. And we're going to live and reign with Christ 1,000 years in heaven. I think we're living in the generation that could witness the second coming. Mm-hmm. So for God, it's, it's, it's not long. Someone asked Billy Graham just before he died, they said, what's the most important lesson that impressed you about life you want to share? Of course, he lived to, now he answered this question when he was like 95, but he lived to 99. And his answer was one word, brevity. He said, the brevity of life. Here I am a hundred. I can't believe my life is almost over. It was so fast. And um, so... If Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, and we live three score and ten years, it is quick. Because your next conscious thought, if you're a believer, is the resurrection. Very true. Very true. Thank you for that. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and other viewers uh, have some questions in regards to this. It says that James says God cannot be tempted with evil. Hebrews says Jesus was tempted in all points like we are. How is it possible for both to be true? 
Well, yeah, I have no question that Jesus was God the Son. Uh, keep in mind, Jesus laid aside many aspects of his divinity when he took on humanity. Um, when the disciples said, you know, when are you coming? He says, no man knows the day or the hour. And he didn't, he said, not even the son, the father only. And just think about it for a moment. When Jesus was on earth and he was crawling around as a baby, did Jesus, like other babies, have to learn to walk? Did he ever stumble and fall? Did his mothers have to, mother have to teach him how to get his food in his mouth from his plate? I mean, he went through the natural growth process of other children. And so was he tempted? Did he, you look at the genealogy, the New Testament begins with a genealogy of Jesus. And it, you've got all these sorted characters in his family tree. And Christ was not like Adam. He wasn't 20 feet tall, a perfect specimen. He was born with all of the, you know, the genetic defects that we inherit. And um, so he was tempted in all points that a human would be tempted, but without sin, because he's the son of God. He resisted all temptation. Thank you. Okay, that makes sense. And what is, can you clarify for us what it means that God cannot be tempted by evil? Um, well, of course, you'd have to be God to say, I, I'm going to tell you what God's thinking, but uh, God is the essence of goodness. Jesus says only God is good. And um Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Um, sin is revolting to God. So the idea that sin would find any attraction in God, hmm. it's, um, it, it's just like, you know, oil and water, light and darkness. It's like saying, you know, let me show you light and darkness in the same room. They can't coexist. One swallows the other. And so God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Sin can have no place uh, with God. Beautiful, beautiful analogy. Question is asked by another viewer in regards to boundaries. What does setting up boundaries with your parents, or sorry, when does setting up boundaries with your parents cross over into dishonoring your parents? Is it possible to set boundaries and yet still honor your parents in that? Well, yes, I think that's a good question. And, um, you know, for me, I, I became a Christian and neither of my parents were. They thought that I'd gone bonkers. And, um, you know, as we had kids and we'd go visit them, it often created some moral dilemmas, especially on Sabbath and the things they'd want our kids to watch or do. And we'd have to say, you know, I love you and I respect you and I honor you, mom and dad, but we're not doing that today. We're taking the kids to church. And we, you know, we'd hear all kinds of your religious fanatic kind of things. And you just have to be respectful. And when you're an adult, you may have to, at times, respectfully disagree. You should always love and honor your parents. And um, uh, But there are going to be times when you always have to say, you know, what's more important, obeying my heavenly father or my earthly father and mother? Mm. So God must always come first. And then as far as lies within you, respect your parents. And if you disagree, don't ever be disagreeable with them. Yeah, there's a big difference. Because you want to win them by witnessing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the the reference that you just gave as well, like how how Jesus, when he was in the sanctuary as a, as a boy, and he said, like, mm -hmm. I need to honor my heavenly father. So Jesus even set up boundaries with Mary yep. as well. Good point. Okay. It must be about my father's business. 
Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. And she would want him to go and, and work a miracle and he would set, set boundaries yeah. on that even at times. Okay. So another question coming in, how do you know, and I think this is a question actually a lot of people are asking right now during the COVID crisis and all the, the fears that are arising out of that, having your family to prepare a home outside of the city. Is it best to raise a family in the country? Well, I tell you, that's a question near to my heart. Um, uh, I just finished a book a few months ago. I know it sounds like a commercial, but it's called A Heading for the Hills, A Beginner's Guide to Country Living, because I get that question a lot. And I just tried to bring my my own experience. Of course, Chris has known our family for 30 oh, something years. I don't know. <laughs> but um, it, we, you know, I grew up in L.A., New York City, Miami. So I had a lot of city life growing up and been to many, if not most of the world's major cities. And um, and then I've lived in a cave and we've had a place out in the country in the hills that's off the grid for 40 years now. So, and Karen and I were just up there a couple of weeks ago. It was beautiful during the pandemic. Uh, it was really nice to be up there, have a place to go. Um, but it, there's a balance, you know, a lot of the statements that you're going to find in the, in the spirit of prophecy about um, country living, uh, there's, there's a balance where you, especially if you have children, I don't think you want to raise your children in an area where there's so much congestion and noise and pollution that they can't have, they can't enjoy some of the benefits of growing up around God's creation. Mm -hmm. So that, that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, live uh, as far out as our place is. I mean, our place is uh, 60 miles to the gas station one way. It's just way out. But the idea is if you can have a piece of land where you have some nature around you, you can grow some of your own food and the kids can grow up, you know, with a dog and a cat and bugs, uh, it, there's some benefits to that that are, you know, obvious. You don't have all the noise uh, of the city, uh, the better chance you're going to get clean air, clean water, sunshine. If you, At the same time, when you're serving the Lord, uh, as of 2015, the majority of the world's population are now in cities. For thousands of years, the majority of the world lived outside of cities, growing food and farming. So now since most of the people, and Jesus wants us to reach the lost, live in cities, if all of God's people move way out in the country, there's going to be a lot of lost people that weren't, aren't going to get the message. So I think the, the ideal is if you can live far enough out of center urban areas where you can have a little property and some of the benefits of clean air, sunshine, country, garden, and not be so far away that you can't reach the lost. Then there's a great book that was written by Bill Frazee. He was one of the founders of Wildwood. It was called Enoch's Outpost. Talked about Enoch and even John the Baptist that would kind of go from the city to the country in their ministry. And uh, there's some good lessons and principles in there. Excellent. Thank you. As Adventists, have we unintentionally added requirements to the gospel slash salvation so that it's no longer something that's a joy, but it has become a burden? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit that to a possible danger for just Adventists. I think any Christian from any denomination can um, make their focus uh, works-oriented. 
I, I heard a pastor say, um, when you ask someone, when you're inquiring about the relationship with the Lord and you say, on what grounds should God let you into heaven? What is your answer? Is your answer is, well, I did the best I could. And, you know, I did quit all these bad habits and, uh, you know, I went to church every week and paid my tithe. If your answer is anything other than uh, you're trusting in the merits of Jesus and his mercy, then you're starting to, you know, stick a few works onto your relationship. Now, having said that, you've got the other extreme. There's two extremes here. One extreme is that because we are saved by grace, um, that you think that that then releases you from an obligation to have a godly and a holy life. There's too much in the Bible that tells us otherwise. But we're not saved by our good works, but our good works are often a gauge of whether the grace of God is working in our heart. And so, you know, uh, I think it's Martin Luther, who's, of course, the champion of grace. He said, we are not saved by works, but you will not be saved without them. Mm. Meaning that if you are saved, they'll be in your life. You'll have that fruit in your life. Do some churches make that a priority? Yeah, that's unfortunate. I probably, I've been guilty of doing it. It's really easy in sermons to start focusing on behavior. And because uh, it's, you know, it's something that we think about as humans all the time. Am I doing the right thing? What can I do to be different? Yeah, it seems to be like the continual struggle of the Christian journey is to not have that self-reliance in any sense and to continue to look fully and completely at Jesus for that transformation. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, because we're saved by grace and we're trusting in his grace doesn't mean there are not real battles with the world and temptation. Too many scriptures tell us there is a war, there is a battle, there's a struggle, there's a fight, we wrestle, we uh, we need to endure. And so, yeah, there's sometimes trials in, in being a Christian, but it's only by God's grace that uh, we get anywhere. Excellent. Thank you. Another question that's being voted up here in Joshua chapter six, God gave Joshua specific instructions on how to conquer the city of Jericho instructions that took seven days to complete. One of those days was the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is so special to God, wouldn't God skip that day? How do I explain this paradox to a Sunday keeper? Well, first of all, when it says they march around the city uh, for six days, and then on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times, and they shouted, blew the trumpets, and took the city. That is the seventh day of sequential marching. But if they're marching seven days, one of those seven must have been the Sabbath. Well, yeah, but what is the problem with that? What did they do? They walked around the city, and they blew the horn. That's called the nature walk and special music. There's no sin in there in doing that. and so. Um, And even in Bible times, in times of war, God allowed the Hebrew army to defend the city. If there was a war, it was always understood, you're going to have to defend yourself. Matter of fact, the Jews, modern Israel, very Orthodox Jews, during the Yom Kippur War, they got attacked on the Sabbath because their enemies thought we'll take advantage of their Sabbath day. They jumped in the tanks and they drove off to defend the country. So if Joshua, if God said, March around the city one time. Maybe it was the third day of marching. We don't know. But uh, that's all they did. They just walked around, blew the trumpet, and went back to camp. 
The next one being voted up. How do we reconcile what the Bible teaches in Hebrews 10, 25, that we should not forsake assembling together for worship with the governmental policies that presently forbid it? Yeah, well, I'm hoping that they don't restrict this for long, but I would, um, I think it would be irresponsible for Christians. If you're in an area where there's, you know, severe issues of a disease pandemic, and uh, you know that it's something highly contagious by people coming together. Um, Jesus also said, don't tempt the Lord. And, you know, don't jump off the temple and ask God to catch you. And if you know that uh, a disease is contagious and you go hugging people that are infected, then you can't say, well, I'm just going to claim God's spirit. And uh, I think it's being irresponsible. So this is temporary. Um, I wish this was the reason that many people miss church is because the government is telling them they can't go. But unfortunately, I think Paul was talking about people who are out of apathy are not attending church. Um, they're, they're expecting, you know, in the next few weeks in California, I don't know where our different listeners are. Many, I suppose, are in California. You know, we're in stage two as of Friday and stage three, they're going to open up the churches along with other public venues probably with some mitigation they'll say you know plenty of sanitizer don't shake hands whatever but uh i we're going to get back together again and i'm hoping we have a big surge of attendance i know after 9 11 all kinds of people came to church i'm hoping that they continue to come uh even after the restrictions are lifted Absolutely. I I agree. I think it's so beautiful too. all the ways that people are being creative and finding ways to still assemble together via Zoom and FaceTime and all these Bible studies going on during the week. Yeah, we're at our church. We're assembling five times in this 24 hour period, some in person. We're having a parking lot service for our mothers on Mother's Day. So our cars are going to drive in and we're going to sing to them and give out flowers. So we're doing some things in person, some things virtually and so we're doing all we can to try and stay connected. That's the main thing. It's the most important. That desire is present. It's not as though they're looking for an excuse to be like, I want to stay home and sleep in. So, beautiful. Um, you know, Pastor, a question that I've received recently from several people is regarding the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. How is it that we know, or, or what is your understanding of who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? And Job, probably. Um, I don't think there's any question uh, that Moses is the author. I've I've done a few series on Moses. And if you look at all of the ancient ancient writings of the Hebrew authors or scholars, the, the Mosaic authorship, if you go all the way back, you look in Joshua, the very first few verses in Joshua, he ascribes the Torah to Moses. Uh, in the book of Judges, they ascribe it to Moses. In Samuel and Chronicles, they ascribe it to Moses. Moses' name is mentioned 800 times in the Bible. Only two people are mentioned more, one being Jesus, the other being King David. Moses is mentioned more than Abraham. And, and so uh, if if a person does not, I mean, Jesus said, if you believe not Moses, then neither will you be persuaded the one should rise from the dead. Jesus ascribes the Torah to Moses. So if you're not going to believe all the evidence of the apostles and prophets that Moses wrote those books, what evidence will you accept? I, I think it's pretty, you can't believe anything Jesus says or anything the Bible says if you don't believe 
those first five books were written by Moses. Something else, I was just actually preaching on Jochebed today, which is, you know, Exodus chapter one and two. And Moses is very careful when he tells the story of his birth. He doesn't mention his parents' name. He doesn't mention um, his brother and sister's names. He tries to be as objective as he can. But of course, later in the book, it tells what their names are in the chronologies. So um, I think you can you can see his handwriting, his fingerprints all over the book. Now, Thank he you. probably did not write the end of Deuteronomy where it talks about his death and burial. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that Joshua helped with that. Appreciate that. Question regarding church again. How do you explain to someone who says that going to church is not important on the Sabbath as long as you do good things? Because Jesus said that it was good to do good on the Sabbath, like helping others, etc. Well, I'd say if a person believes the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath is one of them, and God says to remember the Sabbath day, then look at what God says about how he defines it. If you look in Leviticus 23, the Bible says the Sabbath is a holy convocation. That word convocation means it's an assembly, a coming together. And then you look at the example through the Bible and Jesus' example, as his custom was on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. So they came together. That's what the word synagogue means, the gathering or the church. And um, he read the scriptures. So consistently from the time of creation, where God met with Adam and Eve on Sabbath, all through the New Testament, the Old Testament, it was a day for corporate worship. Now, if a person's sick, they're homebound, we have shut-ins in our church, we try to go visit them. If you can't, you can't. But I worry about those who can and don't. You say, why wouldn't you want to? It's like a guy who says to a girl, I love you, I want to marry you, but do we have to live together? Why wouldn't you want to? To uh, spend time together with the people of God and worship him corporately. Absolutely. Absolutely. The question that's coming through is, what are your personal in-time preparation habits? And I want to kind of piggyback on that as well, because I know, Pastor Doug, as you were mentioning, when you first came to the church and all the individuals that were saying, oh, Jesus is coming any day now. And as you've been in ministry with Amazing Facts for how many years now? 25. 25 years. How is it that you keep your own walk growing so that you're not just stuck in a rut, stuck in your routine, but how do you keep that relationship with Christ fresh and, and growing? Yeah, good question. And it's, it's, I don't want to act like I've got a, um, a secret formula. This is something that's an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing journey for every believer to maintain and try to keep the new, that uh, first love alive, just like in a marriage. It, you know, once you say I do, it's not like, okay, we're married now. Marriage is like running a farm. You start over every day. Being a Christian is like running a farm. You got to start over every day. It's this ongoing maintenance. Yeah, if you want a garden to be beautiful, you can't leave it or the weeds will take over. That's exactly what will happen. In your Christian experience, if you just leave it, the weeds are going to take over. And so I, I try to always be on my guard. And I've seen, like everybody else, you know, you've got times where I say, oh, I'm starting to get in a, a rut here. I'm drifting. And you got to keep coming back again. Some of the things I do is um, I like to read other inspiring Christian testimonies. And that gives me a fresh perspective of other people and how they were close to the Lord. Just last night, I was reading a testimony about William Booth and his conversion. He started the foundation, uh, Salvation Army, rather. 
And I was reading last night about uh, George Whitfield, great preacher. And um, he, he, reading the testimonies of other Christians and their experience, um, I, I find, find it helps me say, oh, yeah, that's missing from my life. I need to do more of this, and I need to keep this perspective. And uh, hearing new testimonies is always encouraging and amazing facts. We're just so thankful. We constantly hear new testimonies, and some of them are, I, I hear them, and I go, wow, they really love the Lord. And I think, I want to have that first love that they've got. And so, and of course, daily prayer. Every day I read the Bible. I read it on my computer. I've got a regular Bible reading program. I'm always reading. And um, that's how you got to eat. If you want to grow as a Christian, it's like human body. You've got to feed yourself. You've got to breathe. You've got to exercise. You've got the Bible. You've got uh, sharing your faith. And you've got prayer. There are three pieces of furniture in the holy place of the sanctuary. You've got the bread, it's the Bible. You've got that light, you've got to share your faith, and you've got the altar of incense, that's prayer. Those are the three essential disciplines of the Christian life. So true. Keeps it strong and growing. I appreciate, Pastor Doug, that you, it seems like you're constantly immersing yourself in your own spiritual walk to continue to stay fresh and studying constantly i know that you read through the bible quite frequently as well and so that yeah we're trying uh, i'm i actually read through the bible slowly but i've done it many many times because i'm relentless every morning six days a week i i am reading i'm somewhere reading through the bible but by the time i'm i'm worried about getting old because i'm reading things that in the bible i think i've read the bible 50 times i don't remember ever reading that I'm always finding things. <laughs> I don't ever remember reading that. So uh, it's a big book and you just got to stay in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So much to learn. Another question coming through when reaching out to your family who may be current or former believers, how do you work past their fear or their apathy of the times that we are presently living in? How do you guide them back to the scripture without making them feel like you're constantly trying to give them a personal Bible study? So how do you not make them feel like you have an agenda? Well, three or four things. Uh, first of all, you be a good example. And uh, you know anything you might say to them or share with them is neutralized if your own example is not consistent. So that's the first and foremost is you want to live it in your life. If they're open, you don't want to be nagging them all the time. But if they're open to information, share it with them. And um, whether it's, you know, recommending a website, a channel, giving them a DVD, if anyone uses DVDs anymore. But, you know, share information, books. Um, Pray for them. And I know that always sounds a little bit like, you know, just uh, it's a trite. Oh, yeah, just pray for them. But really, prayer is powerful. And then the fourth thing would be do all of the above persistently. In other words, keep doing it. God doesn't say that, you know, after one day of prayer and witnessing that everyone's going to turn around. Um, It sometimes takes years. Uh, You need to pray for patience that you can consistently be a witness. And you'll often find that then when a person's going through a trial, they'll turn to you and say, you know, this person, I believe they know the Lord. Maybe they can help me. So, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking when you see loved ones that have drifted from the church and they're kind of apathetic about uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I, I love how, or I think it's encouraging with Jesus and Nicodemus, the fact that Nicodemus wasn't even converted the night he heard John three sixteen, And Jesus is the best soul winner. And the fact that that even was the journey before he came to that. Good point. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah, it can be, it can be discouraging sometimes when we don't see our loved ones making changes. But Yeah, just continue to pray for them. Just remember also, God loves them and is interested in saving them much more than you could ever be. Hmm. And if you say, Lord, I'm willing to be used to reach them. Sometimes I've prayed for loved ones. I said, Lord, I'm not there. I pray you'll reach them, that you'll bring someone into their lives. And I've seen that happen before. Hmm. God just brings someone entirely separate into their lives to reach them. Makes sense. Okay. Next question. Are we near the end of Earth's? 6,000 year probation. So I think maybe a two-part question as well. Is there a 6,000 year probation for earth? And then secondarily, if so, are we in it? Well, I do believe that we're, we're living in the last days or near the end of time. You know, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near trying to say how long, cause I don't know. Uh, I do think there's a little time left just because some things you see prophetically that need to happen. I believe the church needs revival. I think when the church does experience revival and they start preaching filled with the spirit, persecution is going to be revived. The devil is not worried about persecuting Christians that aren't living the life. They're no threat. So the church, in my book, needs to experience a great revival. Uh, but, you know, Pentecostal power, latter rain revival. And um, then you're going to see the gospel going. You're going to see the truth about the commandments going around. Satan is going to get angry. All that live godly will suffer persecution. So the more godly and more energized the church is, the more the devil is going to be aroused. Then you're going to see things happen very quickly in the final events. So one of the big things I'm looking for, Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. This is Matthew 24, 14. Then the end will come. And so I see, um, I see the gospel going to the world. I mean, you know, this medium right now, and we were streaming services this morning and there's, you know, 30,000 people that are, are watching the programs in different parts of the world and 24 hour period. And uh, so we see the gospel going um, through print, personal witness, missionaries, public evangelistic meetings, radio, television, and even corners of the earth that did not allow preaching like China and the Middle East, we're getting mail. That's just, we're one of a hundred ministries. You know, we're, we're getting mail in our office from people that are finding the gospel. Jesus said, then the end will come. He was very certain and definitive about that. So do I think we're living in the last, last days? Yes. Uh, the pandemic is not the first and foremost of my reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been pandemics. And if you had asked someone in, in uh, uh, what do you call it? 1918, is this the end of the world? They might have thought, yeah, when you've got literally, you know, 50 million people or 40 million people dying, uh, this is not near as bad as that. So I'm not letting the pandemic be my guide. As far as the 6,000 years go, you know, I personally believe that there is something to this um, belief that God is going to um, operate his plan of salvation in a six or 7,000 year paradigm. 6,000 years of sowing the seed, 1,000 years rest in heaven. You get the harvest at the end of 6,000. But we don't know when that is. Um, I know we can add up the ages in the Bible. 
And, uh, but, you know, when you get the ages in the Bible, we don't know what their birth days were, different times of the year. And if you go through the what, 40 generations uh, back to Jesus, uh, I'm talking about even from Christ's time backward, there's a lot of variableness there. There's some gaps during the time of Noah. It says Noah lived 600 years and he has three sons. We don't know what year he had what son. And so I think we should not use the 6,000 year thing to try to pick a date. Mm-hmm. You know, some are saying, well, maybe it's going to be 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. Well, that's already passed. So that wasn't it. Uh, now they're saying, well, maybe it's 2,000 years after the baptism. And then someone will say, well, maybe it's 2,000 years after the crucifixion. Or maybe it'll be 2,000 years after the time being withdrawn on Israel, which was uh, 34 AD. And, you know, as I said, you know, it could be sooner than people think because he's going to cut the work short. It could be a little later than you think because he's long-suffering to us. I would not use the 6,000-year theory as a template to try and pick a time. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it's really balanced as well. It keeps us, it keeps us focused. And like you said earlier, we don't know how long our lives will be. Tomorrow's never guaranteed for any of us. Mm-hmm. So the end essentially could be today for, for a person or for ourselves. Let's hope not. But it could be. Uh, yes. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm just going to have two more questions that came in and they both have to do with revelation. And we'll wrap up with these two questions. Okay. A lot of our small groups right now are studying the book of Revelation together. And the first question is in Revelation 18 two, where it says that Babylon the, the great is fallen, is fallen. What is this verse talking about? And is there any particular reason why it says fallen twice? Yeah, a good verse. Of course, Revelation chapter 18 two is uh, a re-emphasis that come out of Babylon, my people of, um, what you find in Revelation 14, the second angel's message. Uh, just keep quickly, keep a, just a bigger perspective of what happened. Babylon stands as sort of like the, the city in opposition to God from chapter 11 of Genesis all the way through the Bible. God's people are carried off to Babylon. After living 70 years in Babylon, they got so comfortable there that when he told them time to get out and go back home, um, They said, no, we speak the Babylonian language. Our business is here. We're comfortable here. And God says, but the plagues are going to fall on Babylon. You need to come out. Uh, So it's it's a message for for God's people to come out. Now, keep in mind, Abraham brought his wife, Sarah, from Mesopotamia, which is a general area of Babylon, to the promised land. When it comes time for Isaac to get married, Abraham sends a servant back to Mesopotamia again across Euphrates to bring back Rebecca. And then when Isaac, I'm sorry, Jacob gets married, he goes back and brings his wife, wives out of Mesopotamia. And God then brings his people out of Babylon back into the promised land. So when you get to Revelation, you got to keep that history in mind. Now, Babylon fell back when the tower fell. Babylon fell. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fell in D- Daniel chapter five, so you get Babylon fallen, fallen. And um, some might be saying, well, Babylon fell during the time when Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fell and it falls again um, just before the second coming 
in spiritual Babylon, that's time for God's people to get out. And they say, well, that's the second falling. But there's no shortage of Babylon's falling in the Bible. And um, so um, Babylon would be, you know, Babylon is confusion. And Babylon and the wine of Babylon would be if a person is a Christian and they're in a church that it believes the uh, fallen doctrines of Christendom, the things that the Protestants protested against, uh, unbiblical baptism, salvation by works. You don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. doesn't matter how you treat your body. There's a lot of Babylonian doctrines out there. And if a person's in a church that believes you die and you burn forever and ever if you're lost or you go right to heaven before the judgment and the resurrection, there's all different levels and depths of Babylonian teachings. God is calling his people back to the truth of his word before the second coming. He says, there are other sheep I have, Jesus said. They're not of this fold. These are his children in Babylon. They'll hear my voice. He says, my people, they're his people. They will come out and there'll be one fold and one shepherd. So as I speak today, I believe the vast majority of God's true followers are not members of my church. But I believe before Christ comes, they're going to hear his voice and they're going to come out. There'll be one fold, one shepherd. I love that as you're emphasizing that confusion will fall. Babylon is falling. Confusion will fall, but the shepherd remains. The yep. shepherd remains. Beautiful. Okay. Last question here from Revelation. Why are the events of Revelation not written in chronological order? For example, Revelation 13 verses three and five. It's like reading a newspaper. You got to say, what's well, got the headlines on this page, but you got to go to page three for the story. Um, the Jews did not write in chronological order, and uh, you see that right there in Genesis. Um, God first establishes the creation of the world, and after he establishes the creation of man and the Sabbath, then he backs up. He says, now let me tell you how woman was made. This is really interesting. Um, but in Daniel, you can see another example of what is repeated in Revelation. God is giving the the history of uh the church, his people, Israel, and he does it through a series of visions. And he does it through the metal image. He does it through the lion and the leopard, the, the beasts, and that does it through the goat and the ram. And then you get into Daniel 10 and 11 and it gets even, every vision gives more detail and gets a little more complex. He's breaking it down. Revelation does the same thing. In the Revelation, you've got the seven churches. God gives the religious history of the church between the first coming and the second coming. Then in the seven seals, you have something of a political history of the church. And I'm simplifying this between the first coming and the second coming. Seven trumpets, you've got a military history between the first coming and the second coming. And so you've got these, and they're all given in sevens. You've got this overreaching message of what God's people will experience from different perspectives. You're walking around this one truth. And he says, I'm going to teach this truth because some people out there, they'll understand. Um, this perspective a little better than this perspective. So he walks around the truth and different visions are showing the same truth, different levels and different perspectives. So he doesn't do it in one chronological Bible's not written chronologically. I mean, the Kings, you ever read that Kings and Ezra, Nehemiah, they're all mixed up. Keeps you studying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that, that idea that he gives a 360 view. And helps kind of keep bringing us around. Yeah. 
So Pastor Doug, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this question, but I, I am confident uh, <laughs> in the response here. So Advent Hope, and this is the last, the last part of our Q&A today. Advent Hope and our community viewers watching here, we come from a lot of different experiences and backgrounds. Many of us are young adult professionals. Some of us are working in the health field right now. Maybe we're at the clinics, at the hospitals still during this time. Some of us have been furloughed. Maybe we don't even have a job at this point and we're not sure what that looks like or even housing situations are a concern. There's a lot of different stressors and experiences that are going on right now. I appreciate your, your opening devotional thought. Are there any other words as we wrap up this time together that, that you could offer to us for our community? Yeah, keep the faith. You know what God said to Joshua? He says, be courageous, be courageous, be very courageous. You know, if God says, I am with you, and this is what he told Joshua, he says, I'm with you. No man will stand before you. And uh, Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the world. And so, uh, and ultimately in heaven, it says God himself will be with us. And so just the confidence that, you know, God is going to be with us, that we're not alone. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that, um, yeah, there's going to be storms. Uh, sometimes we'll forget Jesus is there in the boat with us, but he just promises, you know, I'm with you. We don't have to be afraid. And I can promise if you, uh, you stay close to the Lord, uh, you'll be on the winning team and it's going to get better. Amen. I appreciate that, Pastor Doug. Thank you again so much for joining us and for this time. And I know it was greatly appreciated by our viewers. So thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. As we, as we close up, Pastor Doug, would you mind having a, a final blessing or prayer for us today? Sure. Be happy to. Forgive me keeping my baseball cap on. Otherwise my headset comes off. So. <laughs> no problem. Loving Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to, uh, through this technology to visit and to network with friends, uh, in many different locations. And Lord, I pray that as we focused on your word and your truth, that we've all been touched and drawn closer to you and to each other. Uh, Lord, I pray you'll be in a special way with the, uh, uh, the young adults and these professionals that are um, going through uh, a lot of the, uh, the hardship and changes connected with the restrictions and the pandemic. Uh, we trust that we're coming through the other side of that right now and, and look forward to the day when we can, uh, uh, gather together face to face, not only here on this earth, but especially with you in your kingdom. So bless us now through the remainder of this Sabbath. Thank you for your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.